The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I want to welcome you, dear listeners, to a new series. This series came about actually as part of a joke. So a couple of years ago on April Fool's Day, I joked that I was changing the podcast to the Vice Presidencies of the United States. And I actually was surprised that so many people wanted to hear about Vice Presidents. And so I've had this idea percolating in my mind for quite a while, and things started to come together. And especially, I wanted this series to come together as a partnership, as a collaboration. And so I would like to welcome my husband, Alex, who was previously on the Paul Hamilton episode of the Seat at the Table special series. I invited Alex to become my regular co-host for the Vice Presidencies of the United States. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it. Hope I don't embarrass myself too much. (laughs) Oh, I've been doing that for years. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) But as you can see, listeners, we are going to talk about the vice presidents. There have been, to date, 49 individuals who have served as vice president of the United States. And though we'll talk more about the office in a minute, I thought we'd start by just running through some numbers, you know, just trying to figure out what this office is and how many people we're going to talk about and kind of some of their situations. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. So of those 49 vice presidents, nine have actually become presidents. So there are going to be some names that are quite familiar to all of our listeners, as well as to you, Alex. Mm -hmm. Eight of these vice presidents were born in New York, the most of any state to date, which we'll also talk about as we go through the series. Sometimes that geography is really important in who becomes vice president. And of course, New York has been a prominent state throughout the course of the history of the United States. Vice presidents have hailed from 27 different states to date, as well as from the District of Columbia. Al Gore was actually born in the District of Columbia. Hmm. Did you know that, Al? I did not know that. Yeah, so he is the one to date vice president who hails from D.C. Most have been in their 50s or 60s upon assuming office, But the two extremes, we have John Breckenridge was the youngest at age 36, while Alvin Barkley was the oldest to date at age 71. Of the 49 individuals who have been vice president, 18 vice presidents have run for president either while serving as VP or after their tenure was over. And so that really gets to, you know, trying to understand what this office is and how it's changed over time. And so just wanted to take a moment, Alex, Mm -hmm. to have a conversation. In the course of our lives, we have seen various vice presidents. We've seen so much happen with U.S. political history. What do you think of when you think of vice presidents? Well, the more recent incarnation has been one of a principal advisor to the president. I know that historically, 
from the inception of this country through probably the mid fifties, they were more, um, I guess their duties were to preside over the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so since the fifties, they've been more of an advisory capacity for the presidency. And I I have to kind of wonder why that is, you know, part of me believes that the president had so many responsibilities, they wanted to make sure that should something happen to the president, namely, you think back to JFK, that the vice president would be able to assume the role. And so maybe that's part of the reason why the role has evolved as it has. But that's kind of what I think about. Absolutely. And you are actually, we're going to talk about that Mm. as part of this, because that role has really changed over time. And we've been witness to it in some cases. You know, we think of more of the recent vice presidents and like you said, that advisory role. But as we'll explore in this series, that wasn't always the case, starting with the first vice president, John Adams. You know, again, we'll go into more of that when we get to his episode, but he was definitely not seen as a close advisor to the president. Right. But it does reflect in in a couple of things that you said I want to kind of take up because What are the vice president's duties? So the vice president, and starting with how do we get a vice president? So the vice president was originally the person who got the second most votes in the electoral college. Originally, there was no distinction between the electoral votes for president as those for vice president. Each elector just cast two votes. And so the top vote getter would become president. The second highest would become vice president. Mm -hmm. Now, when... George Washington was in the mix, that wasn't really a problem because, of course, everybody was going to vote for George Washington. And so we didn't really have too many problems until we get to the election of 1800. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were supposed to be running mates with Jefferson being the presidential candidate, Burr being the vice presidential. But because there was no distinction between those two votes, They ended up with the same number of votes, and so it was actually thrown into the House of Representatives to choose who was going to be president out of those two. And, of course, after that, folks realized, oh, this really is a bad idea because, (laughs) I mean, we almost ended up with Aaron Burr as president. And again, we'll talk more about him when we get to his episode, and you'll see why that was probably... Uh, we're probably glad that we skipped the Burr presidency. It would not have been a good time for anybody. But with that, they decided, okay, we need to rethink this. And so the 12th Amendment was passed, which actually differentiated those electoral votes. So each elector still cast two ballots, but one is distinctly for president, one is distinctly for vice president. So we've never had that instance of the Jefferson Burr 1800 controversy since then. Now, there were actually arguments against the 12th Amendment. So Senator William Koch, Democratic Republican from Tennessee, argued that this change would make the vice president see, quote, a senator. It will be brought to market and exposed to sale to procure votes for the president. Will the ambitious, aspiring candidate for the presidency, will his friends and favorites promote the election of a man of talents, probity, and popularity for vice president who may prove his rival? No. They will seek a man of moderate talents whose ambition is bounded by that office and whose influence will aid them in electing the president. So he was actually saying that this would kind of diminish that office and make it so that it was something that was not above the board, you know, that this would really be, you know, this really wouldn't be a good idea. But of course, the 12th Amendment went through. We haven't really seen people trying to buy the vice presidency, but (laughs) (laughs) one thing that we should note, another important condition put in place with the 12th Amendment is that Should no one candidate earn a majority of electoral votes for vice president, the name of the two highest vote getters would be sent to the Senate for them to choose between. And this, too, will play out as we go along. I'm looking at you, Richard Mentor Johnson. So now that we know kind of how the vice president is chosen, let's go into kind of what they do. Though it was implied initially 
with the vice president being the second highest vote getter in the presidential balloting, the 12th Amendment also made it clear, quote, no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. And this relates back to really one of, if not the key role of the vice president. As stated in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, quote, in case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president, and the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability both of the president and vice president, declaring what officer shall then act as president, and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed, or a president shall be elected. So that was a long-winded way of saying the vice president takes up the, and let me make sure I have my words right, the office of the president shall devolve on the vice president. Mm, That's kind of not sounding too optimistic. Devolve. Devolve. And we shall see this too, because when this actually happened, the first time that this happened with the death of William Henry Harrison in 1841, the question became, well, what does this mean? And also you've got that part in there about declaring what officer shall then act as president. So the question, and again, we'll explore this more when we get to Tyler's episode, but the question was, is the vice president, does the vice president become an acting president after the death of the president, or does that person become the actual president? And John Tyler said, no, that person becomes president, the office The vice president is now the president. But that was a whole question because it's really not clear in all of this. Mm -hmm. Now, the other main responsibility of the vice president, as you said, Alex, is to preside over the Senate. According to Article 1, Section 3, Clause 4, quote, The vice president of the United States shall be president of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. The tiebreaker. The tie-breaking vote. And we shall see this come up time and again. And this does become an important role of the vice president. And the vice president has cast some pretty prominent tie-breaking votes over the years. Now, one thing I should note, so I said that that was in Article 1, which is where, you know, it's the part of the Constitution that stipulates, you know, the, the making of the Congress, the powers of the Congress. So this means that the vice president is actually mentioned in the Constitution before the president. Wow. Yeah. Now, in terms of that tie-breaking vote, 297 have been cast by vice presidents to date, with 12 vice presidents, the most recent of which being Joe Biden, never having the opportunity to cast a tie-breaking vote. So out of those 49, 12 never cast a tie-breaking vote. Okay. John C. Calhoun cast the most during his vice presidency at 31, followed by 29 each for the first VP, John Adams, and the current VP, Kamala Harris. As Vice President Harris still has some time left in her tenure at the time that we're recording this, it could be that she ends up surpassing Calhoun and becoming the top tie-breaking vote caster. Hmm. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. When the vice president is not present for Senate proceedings, the president pro tempore, which is an officer selected by the Senate from their members, is charged with presiding over the body. And especially like in the early days, the vice president really made a point of being there. But as time went on, there were some vice presidents that were like, "Eh, I'm just sitting up there. Why would I do that? And so to have somebody presiding over the body the Senate elects somebody to do that. So the vice president doesn't necessarily have to be there. Okay. Yeah. In this, you know, this office, of course, has had some changes and there have been constitutional changes to the vice presidency, including Section 3 of the 20th Amendment, which was the amendment which changed Inauguration Day from March 4th to January 20th. It actually put in a contingency plan that, to date, has not been put into play. Quote, 
if at the time fixed for the beginning of the term of the president, the president-elect shall have died, the vice president-elect shall become president. If a president shall not have been chosen before the time fixed for the beginning of his term, or if the president-elect shall have failed to qualify, then the vice president-elect shall act as president until a president shall have qualified. And the Congress may by law provide for the case wherein neither a president-elect nor a vice president-elect shall have qualified, declaring who shall then act as president, or the manner in which one who is to act shall be selected, and such person shall act accordingly until a president or vice president shall have qualified. So basically this is saying, and this amendment was actually, it came in the 20th century. So to date, you know, we haven't seen this play out, but they start to get concerned. Well, what happens if somebody who is elected as president dies before they're inaugurated? It wasn't clear that the vice president would just then become the president and chill this. And thinking of the time when this happened, because this was during FDR's time, Mm -hmm. FDR had an assassination attempt prior to his first inauguration. So this was still fresh in people's minds. Oh, I guess we do need to figure this out of what happens and of what happens if we lose both of them. If the president-elect and the vice president-elect are no longer there, what happens? Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Luckily, we have not had this instance yet, and let's, let's hope to keep that trend going. Knocking. Knocking on wood. Yes. Now, I said that there was some concern about what if the vice president would actually become president or if they were a president, you know, an acting president, what was happening if the president died. It took until the 25th Amendment, which was adopted in 1967, which clarified that, yes, in fact, the vice president becomes president if the president leaves office. Mm Mm-hmm. How timely. (laughs) I know, right? And especially considering that, so 1967 was still LBJ, but up next was Nixon. Glad they clarified that because that would come into play. It also established that in the case of a vacancy in the vice presidency, the president could nominate a new candidate to the post subject to Senate confirmation. Prior to this, and so... Again, showing kind of this evolution of the office, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go along, but prior to this, if there was a vacancy in the vice presidency, which happened quite often, the vice presidency would just remain vacant until the next presidential election. And like I said, quite a number of vice presidents did die in the office. Indeed, as noted by Goldstein, quote, from 1812 to 1900, The vice presidency was vacant 11 times for a total of 26 years and nine months. Mm, That's kind of a testament to what they thought of that role, huh? Yes. Only 10 of the 21 vice presidents during that period actually completed their terms. Goodness. So, yeah, it was... Almost literally an office where people went to die. <laughs> and it makes you wonder if someone were, you know, voted in or second number of votes or, you know, appointed or chosen as a running mate. Do they do these people that become vice presidents feel like that might be the end of their political career? Because good yeah. grief. What a dead end office that literally to be dead end office. Well, and that's the thing. And, and again, like we'll see more of this as we go along, you know, for a point it was and and with some of these early vice presidents they were chosen because they weren't seen as being a threat they had and we're about to have this in the madison presidency series it actually has probably been released by the time this episode releases but elbridge gary was chosen as vice president because mm-hmm. you know um george clinton had already passed away so again this was an instance that the office was vacant, but the 1812 election was just around the corner, so it really wasn't seen as a big deal. But Elbridge Gary was chosen because he wasn't seen as a political threat. Mm. Because even though Madison was running for re-election, he only wanted to serve two terms, and then they wanted James Monroe to become the next president. And so 
Elbridge Gary was seen as somebody who could safely hold the vice presidency and not pose a threat in 1816, which, spoiler alert, he wouldn't because he was dead by 1816, one of many vice presidents. And, and to that point, seven vice presidents have died while in office, while two have resigned. Mm. Mm-hmm. So going back to this 25th Amendment, the 25th Amendment also provided for the president to temporarily transfer their powers and authority to the vice presidency if they were to be incapacitated. And so this has been used numerous times since when a president was undergoing surgery. And so, you know, our current vice president, Kamala Harris, so they actually did have a point where President Biden was going to be going under. And so the presidential powers were temporarily transferred to her. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that she became president, but just in case something, a decision needed to be made, she would have the authority to do so. Did that happen when Reagan got shot? Yes. It did. I thought it was. Well, so part of that, and and again, like we'll get to that when we get to that episode. So that was George H.W. Bush. There was some confusion because the Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, was saying that he was in charge Mm -hmm. because Vice President Bush wasn't in the area at the time. They hadn't gotten in touch with him yet. but. Technically, because the president was incapacitated, Vice President Bush was the one who had the authority just in case. And they actually, it's, it becomes, it's a very formal process. Like they actually draw up documents transferring power if it's not an emergency situation like the president was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, if they know that a president's going to go under anesthesia, they go ahead and sign over and then formally sign back the power once the president is aware and conscious. Yeah. Okay. Now the 25th amendment is also known. It's probably known better for section four. And especially in recent years, there's been much discussion about this section four of the 25th amendment, which says, quote, whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments are of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. So there's more that goes along with that, but basically this is, you know, saying that a president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of the office. Mm -hmm. And there are some more stipulations about, you know, trying to have some checks and balances so that you, you know, they have to prove the incapacity. Right. They have to continue to prove the incapacity. They can't just say, oh, well, you know, this person, we don't trust their judgment. Well, you've got to prove that they are unable to discharge the duties. Right. Again, to date, this is one of those things that hasn't played out. But it's there, and there's been much discussion about this part of the 25th Amendment and what this means for the vice presidency. Now, here's where we bring in kind of the historical context, Mm -hmm. because, you know, from the beginning, the office was not seen as much. Hmm. Hugh Williamson, a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from our home state of North Carolina, wrote that the vice presidency, quote, was introduced only for the sake of a valuable mode of election which required two to be chosen at the same time, and that it was an office that, quote, was not wanted. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because I just happened to do a little uh, Googling and see this quote that poor John Adams said while he was vice president, in this I am nothing, but I may be everything. Exactly, and so... For the majority of the vice presidency, that's really what it was. It was this office that was seen as, well, you just sit there and preside over the Senate. You may occasionally cast some tie-breaking votes, but unless something happens to the president, and it's interesting because you know this is the year that Queen Elizabeth II passed away, and you know now King Charles was 
the Prince of Wales for so long and was kind of seen in that similar role in Britain, you know, just kind of waiting around for the, the queen wings. to die. In the wings. And that's kind of what people thought of the vice presidency. And so I've got this quote from Goldstein, quote, 19th century vice presidential candidates were chosen by party leaders, not by the presidential candidate. Political, not governance, considerations dictated selections. The second spot was generally used to achieve geographic and or ideological balance, to heal party wounds, or to enhance the ticket's appeal in a competitive state. Vice presidents accordingly had little reason to feel indebted to the president. Often, they disagreed on fundamental issues. <laughs> so, because this office was so insignificant, it was really seen the importance was during the election. And it wasn't even the importance to the president. It was more to the party, trying to make sure that, you know, and again, like thinking of New York, okay, well, if we've got a presidential candidate that's from another part of the nation, maybe to make sure that we get New York votes, we'd put someone from New York on the ticket, somebody who may be more popular, or if we're having some disputes within the party, and we do see this like even in the 20th century, there was a reason that LBJ was chosen as Kennedy's running mate. Yeah. It was to try and heal some of those wounds, to try and address some of the concerns about Kennedy. And so we have this from the very beginning. The office is really important for the election. And then just go and sit up on the rostrum up there and just keep quiet. Mm. We don't want to hear from you. Well, we know LBJ didn't do that. So no, he <laughs> definitely, he definitely did not. Although he did temper himself a bit while he was vice president, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's interesting because, I mean, this was, you know, a hundred years, over a hundred years that this office was like this. But then when we get to the 20th century, the vice presidency starts to take on an enhanced importance, mm -hmm. either as a pivotal liaison with the legislature or increasingly as a member of the executive branch. And so this was the thing, like the vice presidency was not seen as being part of the presidential administration. It was really... Okay, that vice president is the president of the Senate, Senate. is in more of that legislative mm -hmm. stance. And, you know, just stay at Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. Do not come to the White House. We don't have an office for you. And so in the 20th century, we start to see some of that changing. And part of this is because the presidential candidate increasingly had more of a say over who their running mate was. So if you've just got two guys who are being chosen who really don't know one another or really don't care about one another, of course, there's not going to be a warm relationship. But when the presidential candidate starts to be able to say, hey, you know, I think so-and-so would be a good choice for my running mate, then it becomes more of, okay, well, why are you choosing this person? Do they have something valuable that they can bring to the table in terms of, you know, being that, like you said, Alex, the advisor or like LBJ, is this somebody who knows how to get things done on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. that maybe we can use to help to further the president's legislative agenda? But still, as noted by Goldstein, quote, presiding over the Senate remained the vice president's central occupation for the first half of the 20th century. In the early 20th century, Vice President Thomas Marshall, so this was uh, Woodrow Wilson's vice president, described the experience of being vice president as follows, quote, like a man in a cataleptic state, he cannot speak, he cannot move, he suffers no pain, and yet he is perfectly conscious of everything that is going on about him. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Again, I mean, dead end office. I mean, do, do you want to? Be vice president? No, no, not many people really did at the time and for a long period of time. People did not seek out the vice presidency. But, you know, after Marshall says that, you know, Marshall was vice president for, for two terms. And then you have Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge come in. So Coolidge was his vice president. Calvin Coolidge became the first vice president invited to attend cabinet meetings. Hmm. 20th century, 1920s, finally, 
the vice president is invited to a meeting of the cabinet. 140 years later, wow. Yeah. And ultimately, after a century and a half, the vice president would end up with an actual office in the White House itself. Imagine that. Wow. <laughs> Was it the broom closet? <laughs> I'm imagining that the early offices were probably like, okay, where's a small office that we can stick this person in? <laughs> but, you know, it's still like you see in the 20th century, increasingly the vice president is being drawn into that executive administration. And in a reflection of that, you start to see publications that are actually looking at the vice presidency. I mean, there really wasn't that much to study prior to that. But the first one that I was able to find was a book that came out in 1956, Irving G. Williams's The Rise of the Vice Presidency. Hmm. So I mentioned Joel Goldstein a couple of times yeah. because his work is more of a study of the modern vice presidency. And he has two works. So one came out in 1982, The Modern American Vice Presidency, The Transformation of a Political Institution. But more recently, 2016, he released The White House Vice Presidency, The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden. And so I imagine that I'm going to be drawing on his work as we get to some of those later vice presidents. But Goldstein asserts that the growth of the role of the presidency in the 20th century in turn contributed to the vice presidency being drawn into more of a role in the executive branch. And that makes sense. You know, we see, we talk about the 20th century presidency and the 21st century presidency being different than what was previously, and especially thinking of the long 19th century. Goldstein, I'm going to quote him here. The vice president became more visible and his qualifications more important. And Goldstein really looks at, in you know, the title of his second book, he really sees Mondale's vice presidency mm-hmm. as essential to crafting, quote, a new vision of the office as providing a close presidential advisor and senior troubleshooter. This change, quote, has increased the likelihood that the vice presidency will better serve its contingent constitutional function to provide an able, well-prepared successor. So, you know, he sees this transformation as not just being, you know, a growth of the role of the vice presidency while vice president, but should something happen, the vice president will actually be able to take up the office with more confidence. And, you know, we see some vice presidents who became president and were really at a loss of what to do. And the biggest example that comes to mind is Harry Truman. Mm-hmm. You know, Harry Truman first had only been vice president for a short time when he became president. He had no clue what was going on besides what anybody else in Washington knew. He wasn't invited into cabinet meetings. He wasn't invited into kind of the inner circle, the workings of the Roosevelt administration. He didn't even know about the development of the atomic bomb until after he became president and was shocked. He was like, oh my gosh, this has been going on this entire time. What, where has this been? And this was at a time that the nation was in a global war And you have this guy who's just thrown into the office completely unprepared. And so this development of more of the modern vice presidency and looping the vice president in, you know, Goldstein asserts, and I think we would agree, Mm -hmm. make sure that that person is ready just in case something happens. Yeah, indeed. As citizens, makes me feel a little more secure. (laughs) Yeah, I would probably say, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but, you know, based on what I've heard about LBJ, he given the situation, right? You know, mm-hmm. JFK was assassinated. He had to assume the role. For better or worse, he 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 was aware. Yeah. And he was able to assume the role. Now he got us more firmly entrenched in Vietnam. Not a good thing. And that probably ultimately led to him choosing not to seek a second election. Yeah. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Well, and and that actually brings up an interesting point because LBJ, you know, this was a time and you see with LBJ, he not only he wasn't always in the loop of everything, but he was enough in the loop and he had the experience coming in as vice president, as a political figure in his own right, that 
he was able to assume the presidency with more confidence than some of the others may have should that situation have come up. And we'll also see this as we go along, this idea of, you know, what preparation do folks have for being vice president and then potentially being president? Mm-hmm. You know, you see somebody like Millard Fillmore, who really wasn't a big name to begin with, who became president and what were his qualifications besides just being a warm body who was <laughs> constitutionally able? And we see that his presidency didn't turn out so well. You know, if somebody who had been better prepared was chosen versus Fillmore, might things have turned out differently? We don't know. Right. But it's interesting because, like, in this material sense of the vice presidency becoming more prominent, we see in the latter part of the 20th century, the vice president was actually given an official residence. Yeah. So for all this time before Nelson Rockefeller, there was no official residence of the vice president. The broom closet. <laughs> the broom closet. You figure out where you're going to live. We don't really care. You know, let us know that you're alive. Maybe we don't really care. You figure it out. But the vice presidential residence is now, you know, the vice president was granted an official residence at number one observatory circle. And so I mentioned that Rockefeller was the first one that was offered this official residence. He actually only used it for events. He didn't actually move in. So the first second family, and that's a term that, you know, we we hear increasingly the second lady or the second gentleman in the present case, mm-hmm. you know, the second family, the first second family that moved in were the Mondales. So since then we've had vice presidents and their families that have lived at number one observatory circle, but Rockefeller was just like, no, I'll, I'll just use it for events, for parties. My digs are a lot better than that anyway. <laughs> and considering that he was a yeah. Rockefeller, they probably were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Mondale was also the one who pushed for what has now become a tradition, a weekly lunch between the president and vice president. Mm. So again, like these material things, even though it it seems like a small thing, it still shows that this office is being seen with more significance as the 20th century progresses. But one instance that's going to be interesting to examine is when we get to the supposed Bush-Cheney co-presidency. Oh, yeah. You know, we can make our calls about what we feel about that. But, you know, this idea that you've got this, the president is not the one who really has the significant background. The vice president is. And, you know, it's a weird juxtaposition to what the office had been traditionally. I think Goldstein may have even referred to that as the imperial vice presidency. (laughs) I think so. I would, I would say that it's probably a pretty apt description. Uh, it was pretty weird living through it, I can tell you that. Sometimes we are cursed to live in interesting times. Oh, yeah. So, that's all I'll say about that for now. <laughs> but, you know, as we start to examine and start to think through this office, I did want to bring into this conversation another quote from Goldstein, quote, Vice presidential power varies from administration to administration, Yet the change is largely institutional, not simply personal. The vice presidency is no longer a sinecure. It matters now. A lot. Most vice presidential work now is significant. Mm -hmm. So we'll see as we go along, as we explore the lives of these folks, what this means. You know, the times that it was seen as an insignificant office, did they actually do something or were they really just sitting there? And what did it mean in terms of their careers? Because that's also another interesting thing. You know, even though we had a whole string of vice presidents that were dying in the 19th century. Of boredom or otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We did have some who went on to have careers after being vice president. And, of course, I mentioned that some became president, but some went on to other offices. Mm -hmm. So wanted to... Do a little trivia, you know, share some of the offices that post vice presidents held after their tenure mm. of office as vice president. Do I need to find a buzzer? No? Okay. 
<laughs> trivia. No, I won't quiz you. Okay. I won't quiz you. All right. To date, only two vice presidents have served in cabinet-level positions after being vice president, and that was John C. Calhoun mm-hmm. and Henry Wallace. Hmm. Four have served as diplomatic representatives abroad in their post-vice presidency, the latest being Walter Mondale, yeah. guy we've talked about, we've mentioned quite a few times already. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan under Bill Clinton. Yep. Six were reelected to the Senate after their vice presidency, the latest being Hubert Humphrey, who he was also granted a newly created honorific position of deputy president pro tempore of the Senate. Mm. So kind of acknowledging that this was somebody who had served as president of the Senate and was now returning as a senator. Again, Walter Mondale comes up because he is to date the last former vice president to try for the Senate in 2002. He lost his race against Norm Coleman, but he's the last one who actually stood for election trying to get back to the Senate. Yeah. Levi B. Morden is to date the only person to serve as a state governor after being vice president. And he is one of those vice presidents from the state of New York. Richard Mentor Johnson is to date the only former vice president to subsequently serve in a state legislature. In this case, it was the Kentucky House of Representatives. And we'll get into this. And these are definitely some complicated legacies, two former vice presidents served in the Confederate government during the Civil War. Yeah. So as we'll see, and as this introductory episode kind of helps to highlight, the office of the vice presidency is one filled with triumph and tribulation, with great wins and tragic losses. It's a very human story. And so I'm hoping that we, as well as our listeners, will learn much from this exploration of it. So, Alex, what are you thinking so far in terms of the beginning of our journey through vice presidential history? It's very interesting. Um, I can't help but go back to that quote that John, Vice President John Adams uh, made about, in this I am nothing. And I really feel bad for the guy because he had a challenge, you know, as VP and certainly as president. But just to see the evolution, really, and to kind of live through it in the latter part of the 20th century, you know, being that I had visibility to, you know, uh, Ford becoming president. Mm-hmm. After Nixon resigned, and of course, Mondale's expanded role, and of course, the imperial VP, vice presidency with, with Cheney, it's just been really kind of interesting to see it all unfold. So it'll be cool to kind of go back and look at the history a little bit more in depth and kind of compare it to what I've been seeing uh, since I've really kind of been paying attention to politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just to let you know, in terms of quotes from Adams, so Mr. Adams was somebody who... We can count on for quite a few good quotes, <laughs> and especially about the vice presidency. So. Quotes and quips. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes and yes. And we will see some of those in our next episode when we explore his vice presidency. And just to let our listeners know, so because the first two vice presidents are folks who became president, and we've covered quite extensively already, those first couple of episodes are not going to be extensive biographies of Adams and Jefferson. I think that on presidencies, we've already covered most of that. What I'd like to do with these first two episodes is really drill in on their time as vice president. And even though, you know, some folks would be like, oh, well, that's the time that you skip over. There's actually some interesting stuff there to talk about. And I look forward to, and especially with Adams, you know, the first vice president, seeing how this office came together and what role Adams played in that. Mm -hmm. So just know that those first two episodes will not be full biographies. We'll have like a quick rundown of Adams's life, but then we'll really focus in on that time as vice president. And just like with the Seat at the Table series, we're going to be ranking these vice presidents. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to pass judgment, Alex? Oh, I'm always ready to do that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. See, and that's why I knew you would be the perfect person to bring on for this, because I know you. I know you like, you're ready to pass judgment on some of these vice presidents. And believe me, there are some who are deserving of some judgment. I can't wait to get into the nitty gritty. But just to share with you and with our listeners, 
what criteria we're going to be using to rank them on. So we will start with the resume round. So this round will look at the overall career and character of the vice president. The next round will be the campaign poster. Mm. This round examines the physical appearance of the vice president in their official portrait or photograph. Ooh, so that'll be good. Yeah. And so this is, this is something, and I, I had to think through this when I was originally thinking of the seat at the table series, because so many Rexy pods have rankings of portraits or depictions of individuals I really didn't want to go that round with the seat at the table series because I really wanted to focus on kind of their impact. But with the vice presidencies, it really seemed like this was something that we should consider because ultimately that's kind of how they were chosen. They, you know, how they looked, you know, how this would play out. And especially as we get to like the 20th century, that was something that came into consideration. So I thought that this would be something good to introduce then we've got another round and i actually drew inspiration from the ranking 76 podcast for this round because this is our friend or foe round Hmm. this round evaluates whether the vice president supported the work of the administration or undercut the administration's efforts and this is the one round that we can score either positive points are negative points. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and like I said, you know, because the vice president wasn't chosen by the presidential candidate, there were times that the vice president was actively working against the presidential administration, as we'll see. So this is where we can really start to gauge what was this vice president a friend or foe mm. of the president. But then we've got a completely negative points round. The drag on the ticket. Mm. This round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the vice president. And the disgrace will not have to be during their tenure of office as vice president. You know, so if somebody is just really disgraceful, this is where we can we can make it known. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we'll factor in the tenure of office of the vice president. And we'll give some bonus points at the end. So a bonus point will be awarded for each election that the vice president's home state went for the ticket. So again, trying to think through the importance of the VP being on the ticket was in many cases to win over that home state. So we want to give a bonus point if that happened. We'll also award a bonus point if the vice president served in another lower public office, either appointed or elected after their tenure as vice president. So those folks that we were talking about who went on after being vice president to do something else, we want to give them kind of an extra point because, you know, you maintained your significance after serving in what was seen as a very insignificant office. Mm, Okay. (laughs) We'll also award a bonus point if the vice president served out their entire term or terms as vice president. Again, we're going to have some that, no, nope, that doesn't happen. And some that are going to need all the points they can get. (laughs) And some that are going to need all the points (laughs) they can get. And then finally, we'll award a bonus point if the vice president actually became president. Okay. So we do have some folks who will be getting those bonus points. But, you know, that seemed to me the best way to kind of round out. And especially one of the challenges was the fact that the vice presidency has changed so much The modern vice presidency is so much different than that of the 19th century. And so trying to think through how to establish some kind of some kind of ranking system for that. So hopefully this will kind of cover all of our bases. But then the judgment will not be done. Oh, that's what I love to hear. Because we will have one more way that we can recognize those VPs that are just you know, give that extra oomph because we will decide at the end, after we've talked about the individual's life and career, if we think that the vice president is notable enough or impactful enough to preside from the Senate rostrum. So, you know, in the seat at the table series, it's a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars. In this case, it's presiding over the Senate rostrum. So that way we'll be able to recognize those ones that just really stand out from the pack. Cool. So Alex, are you excited about this journey? I'm excited. And well, 
I'm not going to comment too much, but I have an idea that there are going to be some VPs that, and I'm already just kind of getting my judgment ready. It's like, yeah, man, why was this person <laughs> even nominated to run with them? And what have they done since? So it's going to be very interesting to learn more. Absolutely. And just from what I know, and I look forward to learning more as I research, there's going to be some surprises out there. You know, these vice presidents, they're an interesting bunch. You know, they kind of fade into history in many cases, but I want to bring them back and I want to talk about, because I think there's some good stuff there. I think there's some interesting stuff and stuff to talk about to better understand the history of the United States, you know, and to try and understand how they relate to that, even though folks may have seen it as an insignificant office, maybe there's something else there. Maybe mm-hmm. there's something in their, their career or during that time or with that tie-breaking vote. Who knows? We'll find out together. So, All right. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Thank you, Alex, for agreeing to join me on this journey. Sure. And the next episode will be on John Adams, the first vice president of the United States. So I hope you'll join us for that. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that if you, if you have any questions or comments about the series or anything else on presidencies, please feel free to reach out. You can reach out via email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on social media, so I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies, on Twitter as Presidencies89, and on Instagram as Presidencies Podcast. That's all one word. If you'd like to see more episodes of our regular narrative series or the Seat at the Table series, which looks at the life and legacy of cabinet members, you can find all those episodes on the website at Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, dot com. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode of the Vice Presidencies of the United States. We are so glad to have you on this journey with us. So thank you so much. Until next time. Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Bye-bye. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.